I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is Adam Ashton. Millions of people have listened to Adam and his co-host Adam Jones on the What You Will Learn podcast, where they have spent tens of thousands of hours studying the best ideas from the greatest minds on the planet and just simply putting them, taking the best of them within your reach uh, for a fraction of the time. So you would listen to one of their podcasts and you would get a summary of a complex book that may have taken you days to read within just the time that it takes to listen to the podcast. Very clever idea. Then they put that in their latest book, which is titled The Shit They Never Taught You, which will basically take you on a journey through the takeaways from over a hundred of the world's greatest thinkers, capturing lessons in personal development, in career, in business, in personal finance, in human nature, history, philosophy, and every other lesson that could be useful and change your life. It's an exciting conversation for someone like me who is a true learner, who loves to learn everything, to be talking to Adam today and maybe to capture from him what his best learnings through this journey have been. Oh, by the way, as you now uh, hear, uh, you may hear a little bit of noise in the background. There is this beautiful church that's just outside the place I rented in Amsterdam, the Airbnb I rented in Amsterdam. And instead of doing engineering miracles to try to hide the bells, I think for the next couple of weeks or so, you may have to enjoy the bells of the Amsterdam church during our conversation. I hope you don't mind that. I think it adds a charm to slow-mo. So without further ado, let's start a conversation with Adam Ashton. I have to admit, Adam, it's such a wonderful thing what you're doing. You're really taking something that for readers seems to be unthinkable, which is reading is actually a difficult thing. Unless you really are a reader, most people don't read at the pace of bookworms, right? And most people wouldn't actually enjoy a book fully, especially if it's a big or comprehensive book. And, and what you and Adam, Adam Jones, are doing or started doing was to just read them and then put them on a podcast. So within an hour or so, someone can get the entire content of a book, which is fabulous, really, when you think about it. I know the story, but I'd like our listeners to learn a little bit about how did you get to do that? What started you doing that? For us, the, the main part really is learning for ourselves, in all honesty. Like, it's great that people get to hear the best bits from the best books because we sort of condense down, you know, what takes us... 12 to 15 hours to read a book and then another 12 to 15 hours to do notes and then another, you know, four to five hours to record and then edit and then listen back and make sure it's all perfect and then get it up. It probably takes us, you know, 30 hours a week, at least all up. And then a listener can get the best bits in that hour episode. But we're learning so much as well. It's almost like uh, 
uh, it's just like such a win for us that it forces us to read a book every single week. It forces us to go beyond the level of comprehension we ever could have previously have if we just read the book compared to actually actively reading, taking notes, making notes, structuring an episode. We're going through that content so much. And then as you say, the end result ultimately is that somebody listening doesn't have to read a book every single week like we do. They can often listen to the best bits, learn a lot. And then if they want to pick one out of five or one out of three or one out of 10, and they think this book sounds awesome, they can then go and read the full book for themselves. And do you both read the same book every time? Has any of you ever missed a week? Like, you know, you were supposed to finish it, but then you met this wonderful new person and just (laughs) went out dating and then left Adam in the dust behind you or something like that? (laughs) Definitely in the early days, it's like a book a week seemed like an impossible task for us in the early days. Like the first week ever, like back in 2016, when we first started, the first ever book was like 85 or 90 pages. And then the next book, the week after was like 100, 110 pages. And then the next book after that was like a 180 page book. And that felt like a mammoth task. And it took us two weeks to do it. So like we had to do like a a documentary in between because we could watch the documentary in an hour. Um, And then like one book, (laughs) it took us three weeks to read it. So we had to, we're thinking, well, what can we do in these, in these weeks in between? But eventually we sort of like built up the rhythm, built up a bit of a backlog, built up, I guess the, the amount of time it took for us to read. We sort of scheduled that into our week so that we could knock off four or 500 page book in a, in a single week. But it definitely wasn't always like that. It definitely took us a while to build up to that level. I have to admit to you, I mean, as an author, it actually confuses me a little bit because publishers want books in an interesting way. They want them within a certain weight. And I know this sounds really weird, but at the end of the day, the amount of paper in a book affects the cost and then accordingly affects the pricing and the ink and all of that. So, so you know, there is like a certain number of words that need to be in a book. If it's too short, it might not be attractive enough to put at a certain price level. If it's too long, it's too heavy and too expensive to produce. So they want you to be within that range. And I hope Soul for Happy and my next book, Scary Smart, are not wasting any paper or ink. But sometimes you go through books and... Yeah, you feel like this book could have been 25, 30% shorter and you wouldn't have missed out anything. Sometimes it's even half of it is just like filling pages if you want. Do you feel that when you're reading? I mean, if you can summarize it into an hour when I read it in 11 and a half hours, that definitely means a bit of what I'm talking about is unnecessary. Uh, I think yes and yes and no. I think there's definitely books. I wouldn't put your book in that category. I loved uh, every page of it. But there are definitely books out there that whether it was, you know, the TED Talk that blew up and got millions of views and then a publisher said, hey, let's turn this 18-minute talk into a 250-page book. And then they have to find, okay, how do we fill that? Or whether that was they got an appearance on uh, Oprah or Joe Rogan and then they got a book deal and then suddenly they have to turn a series of blog posts into an entire book. There's definitely books that we've read that feel like they were really pushing it to, to hit that quota, to hit that minimum limit, to make that book-sized book rather than you know a blog post-sized book. But at the same time, I think like we're not saying, hey, listen to this. You know absolutely everything from our 35-minute podcast episode. You'll know everything there is to know about this book and you don't have to read the book anymore and you don't have to buy it. In fact, we think it probably goes the other way in that if you get intrigued, 
we've probably only scratched the surface. We've probably only been able, able to cover the best three or four ideas. And then if people go out and buy the book, they'll be able to learn a lot more for themselves. I will say sometimes we feel like our episodes are better than the book or sometimes we feel like we've covered absolutely everything. But a lot of times we think, well, there's only so much time. We, we could talk about this book for four or five hours, but probably just wouldn't work like that. So sometimes it's, it's, uh, we're just giving people a taste of what, what else there is to come. And how do you end up choosing? I mean, you've had episodes on almost everything, relationships, happiness, uh, business, finance, everything. And I'm almost certain you're not an expert by education or background in all of those. So do you get a choice or do you get the listeners to tell you what to read? Or do you go like, okay, I I need to improve my health. So so I'm going to read about diets and how do you do it? Yeah, I'm definitely not an expert in any of the fields that we're reading about. That's kind of the kind of the point is we're reading to learn for ourselves and then we want to bring other people then along on this reading journey, on this learning journey with us as well. It's not like we're the the king sitting on the top of the hill preaching down at everyone saying, Hey, we're the geniuses, listen to us, everything we've got to say. It's more like we're sort of like one or two steps up the hill looking up at the author of the book. The book the author's holding their book up. They're the king at the top of the hill and we're looking up at them and saying, hey, this is what we've picked up and then sort of feeding the messages down to people who are just one or two steps below us. Um, (laughs) And so in terms of like how do we pick like which of these hills, which of these authors do we look up to, it is a lot about doing as much as possible, you know, with a little bit of business, a little bit of career, a little bit of leadership, a little bit of happiness, a little bit of relationships, a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of personal finance. We want to cover things that we think are most relevant to a whole wide range of people and of course things that are most relevant to ourselves if we're for example Jonesy and I both in the last six months have bought a house not together both separately so we we did a couple of personal finance books earlier on in the year thinking about things like that I recently got engaged and Jonesy congratulations I don't want to put the pressure on him, but he should be in getting engaged soon. I don't know how soon. His his girlfriend might be asking questions about how soon that might be. Um, but so we've done some, you know, some books on relationships as well. Uh-huh. So there's definitely like a, an element of us wanting to learn for ourselves, and also then thinking about the the potential listener. What do they want to learn as well? Any categories that you find are more popular than others? In terms of looking at our downloads. Anything with the word habit or habits in the title seems to get a lot of downloads and definitely anything with around happiness, happy happiness is is definitely always good or like a popular one we did around this time last year was how to stop worrying and start living. So things like that definitely always Mm, uh, seem to be universal problems. Everybody wants to be happier. Everybody wants to try to worry less and everybody wants to have better habits. So it seems like they're the universal ones. In slow-mo, actually, I think six of the top 10 or seven of the top 10 had the word how-to in the description. Yeah, which is really weird because I'm not a how-to kind of guy at all. It's not like, you know, at the end of the podcast, I'll say, okay, so give me this, the top three tips to have a more toned bum or whatever. I don't do that, right? (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's it's much more actually about an intellectual and emotional connection between me and the guest. And there is no how-to in it. But most of the time people tend to sort of like like you're doing on uh, what you will learn. Basically, people want to go like, okay, I'm going to put my time into something and maybe I want to come out with something concrete at the end, something that I could learn that would change my uh, my way of doing things. So um, 
I love the podcast. I think everyone should go and give it a, a try. But I have to say the way you chose the title of your book is like, damn, this is a bestseller already. So the book is the shit they didn't teach you. And, you know, the minute I knew that you wrote this, I was like, oh, that's not a book. That's Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, the shit that they didn't teach us in school when they took my, <laughs> <laughs> they wasted my life on learning social sciences and geography and history, which in my mind, of course, a lot of people love, but I was a mathematician and I loved physics and I didn't want to waste a minute on those things. And then of course you, you graduate and you realize that none of the math and, you know, a bit of the math, but none of the physics that you've learned, unless you became a professor of physics, is useful at all. And that they forgot to teach you about happiness. They forgot to teach you about relationships. They forgot to teach you about personal finance and so on. And so a book that covers those bits is almost as valuable as the 12 years you spent in school, right? You know, when you really think about it. So what got you and Adam to think about that? It's a brilliant idea. Yeah, for us, it was uh, this habit of reading a book every single week. It felt like every week we were getting smacked over the head with a brand new insight that we just thought, <laughs> yeah. why, why the hell didn't someone teach us that before? You know, why did it take us this long? We've gone through high school, we've gone through university, we're in the workforce. How come no one told us, our teachers, our parents, our neighbors, our family, friends? At some point, someone could have told us this thing, but nobody did until we went, bought that book and spent that 10 hours reading it. And then somewhere hidden in those pages was this magical idea that sort of changed the way we look at the world or gave us a new approach or gave us a new tactic or just or just gave us something that we didn't realize before. And so for us, like we were getting these every single week that we're reading books. And so we thought, well, that we've had so many of these experiences. How can we sort of package it up all into one spot where somebody can then pick up this one book. If they're not reading a book every single week, they can pick up this one book, have access to 115 different books of these <laughs> great ideas that you know can open your eyes to something brand new. And then for us, it was like, okay, if, if we can do that for one book, hopefully someone can read that, learn a whole bunch of things that they never knew, and then like sort of kickstart their reading journey to keep doing this then. Then becomes a, hopefully they can start their own habit of reading books and continually learning new things. When I first heard about this, I thought, okay, so you guys took books, put them into a podcast. I should take your book and summarize it on my podcast. And then that way, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like we summarize the entire knowledge of the universe. But, uh, but, but that, that would probably not work. So, but the question I have, I have and, and I know it's a bit of a controversial question, but you're a young guy. You're in your 20s, late 20s. Do you think school was useful at all? Yeah, I think definitely. There's obviously pros and cons. We're sort of we're not saying uh, school was was crap and there was nothing good about it, and there was uh, it was all a waste of time. I think a lot of school was really the social side was enormous. I loved school, like I loved everything, like experiencing a whole bunch of different things. School was like a nice, safe place to try the, I was in like a, a barbershop quartet. I was also in the footy team. I was also in the netball team. I was also playing the double bass. So there was like all these things that I was doing that I probably never would have done in, I guess, the, the real world. Like if you're at work, you sort of can't take these risks and almost look like a fool and 
try something different that you've got no idea about. Whereas school is like a place where you're young, you don't really know what's going on, you don't know what you like, you don't know what you're good at. You can go out and try all these things. I think there's obviously some things that probably weren't totally necessary for me. I had not a lot of interest in history, not a lot of interest in philosophy, uh, not a lot of interest in geography. Similar to you, I thought these are all a, a waste of time and I want to get back to the maths. And since then, I've gone the almost the exact opposite way. I don't really do any maths anymore and I love reading about philosophy. So maybe it was just the way that school framed it, that it felt like it wasn't something I was interested in. Whereas now when I'm trying to learn it for myself, I'm super interested in it. So I think there's, there's obviously so many pros to schools. I had some amazing teachers uh, who I still look up to as some of my biggest idols. But at, at the same time, it wasn't perfect. And I think there's a long way from perfect. Do you think there is a way where school can become a little more like what you will learn, sort of, instead of, of giving children a eight years of geography, could they give them a 35-minute podcast and say, do you like that stuff? Do you want more of it? You know, I find that it's, you know, education, if you take the, the 10,000 hours idea of Malcolm Gladwell and Outliers, it's sad when our kids have to spend so many hours on things that are not really what they are all about. They're not really what they want to learn in the first place. It's just not a, a very efficient way of learning. Yeah, I think it probably comes down to incentives, probably like everything in life. You know, economics seems to be based on incentives of payoffs or trade-offs. I guess the school's incentive is to get good grades. The parents' incentive is for their kids to get a good job and to get a good job, if you step it back, they need to get, uh, you know, do the, the hard subjects and study hard to get the good grades. But really, it's probably a better incentive or a better thing to aim for is a willingness to learn. If you want to learn something, you're going to find a way to learn it. You're going to be so much more interested. You're going to be so much more engaged. So I think if there's a way that you can, rather than saying you're going to learn this because you need to score well on the test. If, some, if a kid comes to you and says, I want to learn this, I'm so interested, that's such a different learning experience. I don't know the answer, unfortunately, but, uh, but I think, if, yeah, yeah that's, that's probably something to aim for. Yeah, I agree. So tell me, in, I heard an interview that you had with Adam, uh, I don't remember where, where you were discussing that the first version of the They Never Taught You was actually ranked by your favorites. So you took I think 100 books, and then you rank them from number 100 to number one. But then you change that. So the current published uh, version is by section. It's grouping things around personal finance and relationships and so on. Do you remember what the top ones were when you ranked them by order? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's an always evolving list, and it's an always an ongoing battle between Adam and I as well, because we, we both value different books and different ideas and different styles and different approaches. So we have to battle it out to end up with a mutual top 10 list. Some of our, our favorites of all time, I guess the one that we do agree on is Robert Greene, The Laws of Human Nature, oh, which what I he does is he takes uh, that book. It's an amazing book, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's an incredible, it's like 18 different elements of human nature. That is, you know, he's got stories from all throughout history, from all over the world, and things that just everybody has in common. And it's not just the nice things either, it's some of the darker things, some of the things that you don't want to admit about yourself, that once you read it, and you start to realize that, oh yeah, I can recognize that in my friend or my my partner or my parent, but then you eventually start to recognize it in yourself as well. 
Did you read his previous works, uh, The 48 Laws of Power, 33 Strategies of Wars, and I think The Art of Seduction was the first he wrote. Did you read any of those? Oh, I haven't read The 50th Law, which was the one about uh, he did with 50 Cent. Yeah, I loved that as well, yeah. Oh, nice. I haven't read that yet. And then I've got, uh, I got about a third of the way through Seduction, but haven't finished it yet. But yeah, Power, Mastery, Strategies of War, I've read all those as well and fantastic. Yeah. They're, all, they're all amazing books. I dare you summarize the 48 laws of powers in 35 minutes. <laughs> it's like almost impossible. Yeah. <laughs> the same as the, the laws of human nature. We had to do three one-hour episodes and we still only covered half the book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Interesting that you, you named that book specifically. Robert Greene's definitely one of my favorite authors. Uh, he's very meticulous in the way he does things. And at the end of it, he... The 48 Laws of Power, even though I'm not a power junkie at all, but, you know, growing up as, a, as an executive in corporate America, you needed to understand all of the power games that others play against you. I mean, I never used it against anyone, but I could actually exactly like you said, you know, spot people who were like politicians in this way or aggressive in that way and so on, which really helped my career very, very significantly. But the book itself was so long and so comprehensive. Uh, I think it was like 480 some pages and lots of history and lots of thinking. And I love that. I love a book that's a big task. You know, it's like, okay, I really need to be present when I'm reading it. It's not just a, an entertainment there. Okay, so this is one that you and Adam agree on. What else? Probably a timeless one, as well as the the seven habits of highly effective people. Mm. Uh, I think it's, a, it's probably one that most people know about not as many people have read but you've probably heard it it's referenced in so many books and referenced i'm sure in so many if you ever go to a, a career day or a, you know professional development day i'm sure the speaker quotes stephen covey at some point or something but it's those ones are just timeless we've actually read it three or four times each and it feels like every time we read it we're learning something new yeah favorite habit do you remember well it changes every time like the first time i read it it was definitely be proactive, you know, the gap between stimulus and response, you've got the power to choose. And in that gap is where what really determines everything that the power of choice that you have making this decision or that decision really dictates what happens to you next. And then I think the second time I read it was around the prioritizing, you know, the Eisenhower matrix, urgent versus important. And that's the one that those quadrant two tasks of the things that are vitally important to do, but they're not urgent. So you always put them off. You always kick them down the road. You know, the important planning or or thinking about, say, the, the New Year's intention, thinking about things like that. They're the quadrant two activities that if you don't schedule time to do it, you're never going to do it because something else always more urgent is going to pop up and steal your time away. So definitely that one stuck out to me. So I'm sure the next time I read it, another habit will stick out to me that's something different as well. Yeah, area of influence and area of concern, I think was a very key for me when I was very young. When Massive, I, yeah. Yeah, when I read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I must have been in my late 20s or something. And that idea of not wasting cycles on things that just concern you, but you cannot affect them, I think was very, very effective for me. And it really probably saved me. It's such a simple idea. Yeah. And it probably saved me, you know, if you add the hours, thousands of hours in my life afterwards of not wasting cycles on things I cannot change really. And it's quite a big thing. I heard you say that about some of the books that you read. Oh no, it was actually Adam Jones, which was talking about quitting smoking. 
And the idea that you buy a $10 book or a $15 book that teaches you how to do this, and just in terms of the hundreds of thousands of dollars that you would have spent on smoking in a lifetime, you know, not taking into account all of the health issues and so on, and how one simple idea can change your life forever. So this is really, really uh, was a very interesting view of learning and, and reading. It's so powerful if you think about the the trade-offs again the turn on investment the investment is you know fifteen twenty dollars plus six to eight hours of reading and in that case quitting smoking as you say it's hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on cigarettes not to mention I don't know ten to fifteen years of extra life not to mention enjoying every day rather than constantly craving a cigarette all those things from that one book and that's such an obvious one but there are so many others as well if you think about like negotiation books if you can read one negotiation book and take your negotiation skills from a a one out of ten to a four out of ten and you can get a 3k or 5k pay rise additional every single year because you're a better negotiator extrapolate that over the course of your career that's a pretty substantial return on investment from that one book they're the obvious ones and then if you think of like one book that you read that might spark something inside of you to want you to to start a business that it might flop at first but then you start a second business and all those learnings you took from the first one you do a little bit better but even if that one flops you try again and it's all because of that one book and then you try it and try it and try it and eventually you might get a successful business out of it that the ROI is a bit less clear but it's still there. Mm, totally. It is funny because I don't know if you have that statistic but Less and less people are reading. I think more and more of the time that we we read words with is used for Instagram and Facebook. And is that true? Do you believe that this is the case? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I honestly don't know. In my personal circles, I don't know that, that many people that read books or if they are, they're not talking about it as much. So yeah, yeah, I think I'm, I'm sure there is. There's so many different things. And it's in some ways, maybe the book, the medium of the book itself isn't the best way for some people to learn. Maybe if they're on YouTube watching educational videos, if they're on inspirational Instagram accounts, maybe that's achieving the similar sorts of things. But it's probably, for me anyway, it's easier to say, oh, I'm watching this educational YouTube, but it's really not. Or you, you start out on Instagram looking for inspirational quotes, but then you very quickly you end up looking at dog photos or girls in bikinis or whatever tickles your fancy that it's, it's sort of easy to drift. Whereas when you're, in the, when you're inside of a book, I think it's a lot harder to at least pretend that you're learning. Obviously, inside of a book, you're definitely learning. Yeah. So you said the first podcast was 85 pages and then it became 100 and some and so on. So you've obviously became a better reader over time. Like you read faster, you comprehend better, you mark your book better. Any tips or tricks for people who are maybe struggling a little bit with reading to be able to read a little more efficiently? Definitely the biggest one by a long way is not so much reading faster, just reading more often and just like finding small pockets throughout the day, not viewing reading as this painful mammoth task where you have to commit all your time and energy that at the end of the day, when you kick your feet up, you lie in bed and read for an hour and a half. If you see that's what reading is, then it's going to be super challenging. Or you say that I have to sacrifice going out with my friends to stay home and read a book, then it's it almost becomes a, a painful thing to have to do. 
Whereas for us, it's like, okay, if you, you've got a train ride for eight minutes, then you, you read six pages. Or if you're waiting in the dentist and you've got a 13-minute wait in the dentist and you've got a book with you and you can squeeze out 10 or 12 pages there. And then maybe during your lunch break, you're excited to read the next 20 pages that you can read in your lunch break. So it's almost like finding those small pockets throughout the day to read not faster, just more often. And I think that's probably the best advice really is not to not to view reading as a chore, but to view reading as something that you look forward to, to filling all those boring dead spots throughout the day. I love that tip. I actually never thought about it this way. I do that on writing, believe it or not. And some of my best writing happens when I no longer stick to the two hours in the morning that I write in. You know, sometimes when I get inspired, you know, so when a book takes me over, I literally would have 10 minutes between two meetings and I would rush to the bathroom in two and then sit down and type for eight minutes, which is for a writer, it's like really not enough at all. But I sort of type the titles of the thoughts that I had in my head. And then the next eight minutes, I would fill under one of those titles. And when it becomes part of life, I think I find that this is the time when I know that I am about to produce another book in four or five months, once you get into that rhythm. Let's go back to favorite books. Share one or two more. And if you can give me your absolute, your, forget Adam. Adam. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, it's, it's quite, I mean, like you guys could have found other names, but anyway, uh, you know, Adam one and Adam two. So for, <laughs> for, forget Adam two. Let's talk about you, Adam one. And um, what is your absolute? Do you have like an absolute favorite top five list? Yeah, definitely. So definitely the two I mentioned are definitely in that top five list. If I was to fill those out as well, probably the next three on that list would be Range by David Epstein, The Dip by Seth Godin, and Influence by Robert Cialdini. They're probably the other three that make up the top five. Oh my God, I haven't read two of them. Influence and... Really? Yeah, I, I read The Dip, of course. So Influence, you said, and The Range. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, forgive me, audience, for I have sinned. I will read them. What are they about? If you can quickly tell me the range and influence. Yeah, so influence is, uh, I think he originally wrote it in the mid-1980s, maybe. It might be the 90s, but I think it was the 80s. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence, persuasion. It's about, he calls it the six weapons of influence or the six weapons of persuasion. It's the, the small, subtle things that go into a message that make that message more persuasive. Obviously, the, the obvious thing of persuading someone is getting somebody to buy a product, you know, getting someone to front up their cash in, in return for getting your product. But of course, there's subtle ways of influence and persuasion as well, you know, getting somebody to do something, getting an employee to write that report for you, getting a, a girl to go out on a date with you, whatever that is. Like, uh, there's all these things where these things pop up, things like scarcity, things like authority, things like uh, reciprocity. They're some of the weapons of, of influence. Mm, I love that. I think that's really, really important. I mean, you mentioned negotiation skills. I think this is part of it, but really the idea of influence is much bigger. I will read that, sir. Thank you. And I think it's it's similar to the forty eight laws of power in the sense that it's like a, it's a little bit a little bit dark or a little bit feels a little bit manipulative or 
evil almost, but it just sort of depends how you read it. You can obviously read it if you're an evil person, if you want to add these weapons to your arsenal to become more influential and to influence more people. But at the same time, you can read it almost as a defense mechanism so that you know these weapons so that you can defend against them. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think it's one of the most contested things about Robert Greene's or I didn't read Influence work is, is that you could think of it as very evil, like this is manipulating people. But the truth is that people manipulate you all the time and you need to be aware of those things as a defense mechanism. I see that to be, uh, to be very valuable, actually. And the range was about what? Yeah, so range is uh, more of a career book, more of an approach to life type of book as well. He sets it up with the story of two famous sportsmen who both reached the top of their sport at the top of their field. One was a, a young boy. He was you know, a few months old when he started practicing his sport. He grabbed a, a golf club and started swinging it around. And then his dad taught him, you know, he drew pictures on where to, where to hold the golf club. And he, from two years old, he was able to beat adults. And then when he was you know, at the age of nine or 14 or something, he was winning national tournaments. And of course, that's Tiger Woods. And he got to the top of his field by going narrow, by becoming a specialist, by picking what he wanted to do, focusing on it, doing it every single day, day after day, improving his skills little by little, just that 0.1% improvement was the difference between you know first and second. And then the other story, which was a, a boy who as a teenager didn't really know what sport he liked. He just knew that he liked ball sports, whether it was soccer, whether it was badminton, whether it was tennis, whether it was handball, whether it was he even liked a bit of wrestling as well. So it was a, a person who tried all sorts of sports. And it wasn't until in his late teens that he picked his sport and began to specialize. And this person was Roger Federer. And Roger Federer also became you know number one in the world in his sport, but took a very different path. It wasn't the path that he picked that he wanted to be a tennis player at the age of two and focused on that all his life. It was that he was trying this and then trying that and then trying something else. And it was like the skills that he developed from soccer helped him with the footwork. And then the Absolutely. skills that he developed from playing squash with his dad was like helped him with his, with his backhand. It was like eventually all these different skills mixed together and he became a superstar in this one area. So it's sort of like the two different paths. You can either pick what you want early, work, 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 work really hard, the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours approach, or there's also this other approach, which seems like less clear, a bit scattered, you're a bit all over the shop, but then sort of at the other end of it, by taking this range, it sort of all clicks together and you can still become successful, even though along the way you didn't look like a success. I have to admit, Adam, when, when I hear you explain those things that way, I go like, maybe I should just listen to your podcast uh, about, about those instead of... <laughs> um, <laughs> Can you tell me about the podcast once again and or the book? I mean, you must have covered happiness and happiness is a very important topic for me. And any favorite authors, any favorite thoughts there? Yeah, well, we actually started off. So in our book, lesson one is Smell the Roses. So the book is uh, 115 books. We've grouped them into 32 lessons across nine different parts. And lesson one was Smell the Roses because... We thought, well, we had all these different lessons. Where do we start? The thing that we often, again, that we never get taught in school is how important happiness is. And it was something that is obviously universally applicable. It's something that we wanted to start the book off with, that especially the types of people we were assuming that we're going to buy and read this book are the super high achievers, super hard workers, super dedicated, the type of people that know what they want and they're going to go for it. We figured those types of people are probably 
forgetting about happiness. And so we wanted to start off on that foot of saying, hey, you know, let's think about happiness first. We started off with Neil Pasricha, The Happiness Equation was sort of the first book that inspired that. And I'm, I'm wishing that we had a red soul for happy earlier because without doubt that would have got in there. I love Neil's work, by the way. Oh, nice. I only just recently stumbled upon another book, The Algebra of Happiness. I haven't read it yet, but I thought it was funny that there was these three books, The Algebra of Happiness, Soul for Happy, The Happiness Equation, that are all like, I'm a bit of a maths nerd at heart as well, so <laughs> yeah. uh, that, are, that are tying maths into happiness. Yeah, I mean, to someone like me, if you don't put it in maths, you don't get it. So Neil took a very different approach to his happiness equation, very different than mine, but also very valid, I think. And he was the best-selling happiness book in Canada, I believe, when I published in Canada. So we got in touch and it was uh, pleasant to see that he's doing something amazing with his work as well. Did uh, people like Eckhart Tolle, Byron Katie, any of those make it to your list? Eckhart Tolle was on the original, I don't think it made it in. So we probably did, as you said at the start, the plan was 100 to 1. The power of now was originally on that 100. And then when the plan changed and we started grouping things together, I think power of now got lost in the shuffle. It didn't fit into this new structure. So I think it became a bonus chapter in the audio book, but it didn't actually make it into the book itself. But it almost did. It was originally in there. You need to write another book then. He's the boss. I mean, like... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Did you self-publish? I wanted to ask you that because you're selling it on your website. Yeah, yeah, we've self-published. And so that was sort of, for us, made the most logical sense as well, because obviously having an audience of our own through the podcast, but also not having a, a massive audience like a Tim Ferriss or a Joe Rogan through the podcast. It was like, we seem to be in the nice middle ground where self-publishing made sense and we had full control. And as you say, publishers have a view of what a book should be. And I think our 686 page behemoth didn't fit that. So it was good to have full control over, over how it turned out. Yeah. Did that work well for you? I'm thinking of, I'm not thinking I'm actually planning to self-publish my next book in North America. So I have an amazing publisher in international English. And, you know, most of the countries where we did very well in Software Happy, so the Netherlands and so on. But I'm thinking of self-publishing in North America. And I have to admit, I'm like a bit worried. It's like, ooh, you know, I'm not a publisher. Do I really know how to do this? Was it easy? Was it a, <laughs> a simple idea? I suppose for us, we didn't know any better. I wouldn't say that we did it perfectly. We made plenty of mistakes along the way. I'm sure the second time would be better. But yeah, I'm sure there's plenty. Like I think Nir Eyal, who you've had on your podcast, who I was listening to recently. Oh, I love Nir. Oh my God, amazing. Yeah, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think Hooked was originally self-published and then a publisher bought the rights to it, if I'm ah, not mistaken. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Did you interview Nir? Yeah, we did. Around the launch of Indistractable. Yeah, uh -huh. he's, he's great. Indistractable is brilliant. And his episode on slow-mo, he was so generous. Like he, we spent an hour and a half, we covered every, so many gems of his work. One of my favorite conversations actually on slow-mo, it was, was really cool. Oh, fantastic. It was a great episode. I've got some other questions for you at some point as well. <laughs> yeah, all right. Absolutely. I was in the back of Soul for Happy. I took some additional notes of, of things that I want to discuss. So I don't want to, I don't want to hijack your own podcast, but as a, as a podcaster, I couldn't resist some of these questions. Why not? I think they would benefit people. So <laughs> yeah. 
there's no real order to these and we might not get to all of them. But one of the things I was thinking, for me anyway, with happiness, especially with emotions, I, I feel like I don't really have the highs and the lows as much as other people do. And the reason that this came up, I mentioned recently we bought a house and it was like a, it was like a big four or five month struggle trying to find something and then going to auctions and losing and it's a, a pretty hot property market at the moment. But we finally got there and I guess what you'd think would be this massive ecstasy didn't really eventuate. It was just like, oh, that's good. Okay, move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, I was, I was playing footy on the weekend and we were up. We've only won one game this whole year and we were up. We're winning with 10 minutes to go, we were up by three goals. They kicked one goal. We were trying to hold them out. They kicked another goal. And then like with 20 seconds to go, they kicked a goal to get in front and we ended up losing the game. And some of the blokes were shattered. I think there might have even been a few tears, a lot of anger. Whereas for me, I sort of just copped it and moved on without too much negative emotion. Obviously, I would have preferred to win, but I wasn't shattered. Was it? Is there like a almost like a, a set level you think of people's emotions that some are, are more sensitive or more reactive to others or am I just a, a little bit cold and heartless and need to, need to engage more in, in the now? I don't believe that at all. I believe I interviewed Jill Balti-Taylor on my podcast here and Jill is my absolute all-time hero. I adore her in every possible way. And she was talking about the idea that emotions really, from the time you feel them to the time they're flushed out of your system, I don't remember if she said nine or 90 seconds, basically that's it, right? For an emotion to take us over so much, it is something that we have to reinforce. We have to, even if you look at, I'm writing a book called Stressed Now. If you look at the cause of our stress, you get triggered in your amygdala, you you trigger the system all the way down to your uh, adrenal gland, and then you get cortisol uh, all over your body. Now you're stressed, right? And then this is detected by your prefrontal cortex and some other part of your brain. And basically, your brain then has the ability to say, ah, you know, it was just a bird, you know, nothing to be scared of. Or your brain can actually turn it into, oh my God, my city is so stressful. There are always noises. And a lot of people just go through that cycle and reinforce the negative emotions all the time. And that's why some people overreact massively to something and link, you know, cling onto it and and literally go from being a little irritated to being angry, to being angrier, to being furious, to hitting someone in the face. That's because of that reinforcement cycle, (laughs) right? And I think like you, I mean, you're in a way clearly an intellectual who understands things. If you think about something like Stephen Covey's area of influence and area of concern, for example, that basically tells you, well, we lost the game. We lost the match. There is nothing I can do now. It's not within my area of influence anymore. This is something I can be concerned about and it wouldn't change anything for me. And so, you know, why would I spend my time worrying about it? If I can do something about it, I should give it the right emotional cover. If I don't, yes, it's okay to feel emotional, but let's not be stupid about it. And I think there is a bit of wisdom in that, that is triggered first with knowledge, but then it becomes a reality if you want with practice. The more you realize that, hey, you know, getting really angry about losing a game, uh, that's really not going to fly in the world, really. Uh, It's taking too much effort. It doesn't bring the game back. And some of us eventually start to realize, you know, this is why people who are older like me, very few things really impress you anymore. It's like, seriously, you know. (laughs) 
Is that something that I was I really worried about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like I've seen it before. And so it's not a bad thing at all. It's the, it's the truth of wisdom. As a matter of fact, some equate enlightenment with the ability of not seeing anything as good or bad. Everything just is. Winning the game is not good and losing the game isn't bad. You know, it's just a game we were supposed to play and we played and life is fine. And we'll play again tomorrow and we may win again tomorrow or lose again tomorrow. And it wouldn't make any difference as long as we continue to play. I think that's where it is. Can I ask you about relationships? Any recommendations? So I, I believe that relationships are probably one of the biggest reasons for unhappiness in our world today when they're supposed to make us elated. Have you had any, you know, like amazing advice in some of the books that you reviewed? Yeah, certainly. So we had a, I think it's lesson five, lesson four, lesson five. I'm pretty sure it's lesson five. It was all around relationships. And uh, the books in there that we covered was Getting the Love You Want and The Five Love Languages. And I think The Five Love Languages was a, was a great one. Yeah, I think it's like a, the metaphor he uses is if you're speaking to someone and you can only speak French and they can only speak Japanese, you can both talk, but neither of you is hearing each other or neither of you is really understanding each other. Neither of you is getting anything out of that interaction. He says, similarly, when it comes to love as well, that you can talk to your partner, you can be thinking that you're showing love, thinking that you're communicating love, but they're not understanding you whatsoever. And he says it's like you're speaking two different love languages. And so it's a matter of trying to obviously working out what your love language is, working out what their love language is, and trying to start to speak each other's language as well so that they can feel loved. And that so when you're communicating love, they're understanding that love. Mm, I love that book. This is a truly very eye-opening view of it, actually. And I think it's quite simple as well. It's like those five things. If you know the five, if you can work out yours, work out theirs, you don't, um, it's not like it's something that, you have to study for years to work it out it's like once you sort of even if you just do the test and learn like what each of the five are it becomes easier to just at least think about it a bit yeah and one that i'll add on that 100 percent would have there was a few as well that definitely would have made the book reese it was uh published after we'd finished writing though beyond order by jordan peterson everyone's got a different opinion of jordan peterson um Hmm. but i think some of his chapters in that newest book were fantastic some of the best relationship advice that we'd ever heard it was a a lot about almost the mechanical sort of logistical side of how a relationship should operate but it was almost like clearing out some of those niggling sources of frustration that often go unsaid and often go untreated that if you can get it all out early and you can work out a bit of a plan or a bit of a structure as to how this relationship's going to operate the rest sort of seems to take care of itself so i thought that that book was um fantastic and uh i wish that we had read it three months earlier so we could have added it into ours you're gonna make another book more that's that they it. haven't taught you, you too, that's it. This, exactly. we can do so many of these there's so much <laughs> shit <laughs> Adam I really really have enjoyed our conversation so much I wish we could keep going and I normally would but sadly I have a business appointment which is ah oh man this has been a wonderful conversation you're such a wonderful human being and you're so knowledgeable and sharing that knowledge is in such a, a beautiful, simple way is really fantastic. I'm very, very grateful for your time. I will urge everyone listening to give what you will learn at the podcast a try and, and the shit they never taught you. I'm buying that book right now. I will tell you that much. 600 and 
something pages they'll ship it to me from Australia so how, why should I care <laughs> uh, so <laughs> and, uh, and I'm very 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 grateful for your time I think it was wonderful thank you so much to you too is that I've been listening to you a hell of a lot over the years, your podcasts, your audiobooks, reading your books, and I'm looking forward to your new book coming out. So I reckon maybe uh, you might have to pop on over to what you will learn when the new book comes out as well. Deal, absolutely, absolutely guaranteed. You know, the thing about my books, honestly, is that I really am not about selling books. I hope my publisher doesn't hear me saying that I'm about <laughs> spreading the message. So yes, I would absolutely love to actually even talk about Soul for Happy, talk about Scary Smart. I think uh, Scary Smart is important for people to hear about. So absolutely, we will stay in touch. I'm really, really grateful. And for all of you guys listening, I think you must have enjoyed this as much as I did. I've taken so many notes about books that I missed. I would probably say listening to the podcast would also trigger quite a bit of that thinking. So please share this episode with people that you love. I think everyone would benefit from it. And uh, do help us out by spreading the message. Give people a little bit of a nudge to come and listen to Slow Mo. Maybe rate us a five stars on Apple Podcasts. That would work. And uh, remember, even though our times are busy nowadays, there is always a little bit of time for you to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.